every day when I think of this song, I go, why? Why would you hold me that way? And I know it has nothing in me that brings value to that hold. It is your love. It is your care. It is your grace. It is your mercy. It's who you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. We love you for that. Continue to do that every day. Bring us the sense of that holding us, uh, that care, that amazing move that you do toward us every day. Lord, when I think about my own life, I go, I don't know. I wouldn't be doing it. (laughs) And yet you do. Uh, Thank you. What What a wonderful opportunity this morning to worship with your people. What a wonderful opportunity this morning just to hear from your word. And I pray now that you anoint both as we seek to understand what you're saying to us today and that we would soften our heart toward you as we hear from you today. Whatever that application is for me, for each of us, I trust that you do that now in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is a great joy for Allison and I to be here with you guys again this week, and uh, we'll give you a little bit of a report of that after the service has already been said, and so I won't take any time to do that now. But I do want to thank you. Uh, I know the last time we were here, I had the privilege of speaking in your worship service, and there were six people in this room, <laughs> and you weren't here mostly, you know. Uh, those of you who are joining by uh, the streaming and or a video later, uh, thank you so much for being part of this, and I trust that what we do together now in God's Word will not only honor Him and uh, be true to His Word, but... Um, be something that encourages you and is applicable in your walk uh, every day. So um, some of you might have this uh, outline that I produced, and I I do thank Mike and the others for getting this out to you. Uh, I I didn't finish it till late last night, and I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do with this. And here it is. It's kind of a brief overview, perhaps. And I want you to write a word at the top of it if you've got a pen. And if you don't have a pen, um, just remember this word. I just want you to write the word consider. Consider. Um, I'm going to offer you a view of the book of James today. That's my view. I don't pin it on anyone else. It's my view. And I just want you to consider it. If it matches up, good. If it doesn't match up, I'm okay with that as well. You uh, consider it. When you think in terms of this book, um, I know that over the years... I came to a place where, as a pastor, I would preach the different elements of this book, knowing it's a very practical it's a very practical work from God. He speaks about very specific things, and they're beautiful, and they seem to be separated from each other, standalone oriented truths. Just one I could pull out of this passage, and one out of that passage, and one out of that. But there seemed to be no unity in the text, or no flow, as I might say, or as in my title, path. A path of James. I personally believe now there's a path inside of James. He starts somewhere and he wants to take us somewhere. So what I want to do now is I want to give you my sermon in one sentence. I hope that this sentence makes sense. I honestly believe if we really got this sentence, we wouldn't have to do anything else today. <laughs> we will do some other things today. So, um, But nonetheless, here, here's my sentence. I I believe James is saying 
that when you encounter challenges that do not make any sense to you, trials that take more than you have, that God has provided a path to walk that leads to healing. That's what he's doing in this book. In chapter 5, he writes one sentence that summarizes this path. I think he simplifies the whole book in one sentence. I'll read that sentence to you here in just a couple of moments. I believe there's multitudes of, of experiences that we have, even as we path our way through this simple version of James in one sentence by him in James chapter 5, verse 16. Three steps, as it were. Now, these steps are progressive steps, and there are steps to take, to be sure, but they're also essential elements of what God values in my life and in your life, what He values in our relationship with each other. If we fail to understand the value of these three steps, if we fail to actually practice these three steps, we miss what He's out for us to have. But as we understand them and as we walk through them, taking those steps the value of what God has for us is then experienced by us and especially when conflict is around. Especially when sin issues are in play. Especially when trials happen and the challenges that they bring. And they bring many as we will discover. But verse 16, first sentence of this verse, says, therefore, now he's summarizing, therefore, Confess your sins to one another. That's step one. And pray for one another. That's step two. That you may be healed. That's step three. That's the destination that James has in mind as he begins this letter and speaks to us. I mean, he starts with confession. It's literally a word that means you hear my confession when I make it. I hear your confession when you make it. It's not a confession I do in my closet. That's not what he's talking about. It's a confession that I speak to you that you understand and can grapple with. Determine whether you believe me or not. Am I actually owning my transgression, my sin against you as I confess it? That's what it means. The second step in this process is an appeal to God together. It's called prayer. We pray together. We appeal to God. We, we come with Him. And I believe that the inference of the verse means that you hear my prayer for you and I hear your prayer for me. It's just the same character as the confession. So now we are praying with each other and we're hearing each other's prayer. For what end? The intent of the prayer is healing. And it's nothing less than healing. If healing is not our intention as we confess our sin, if healing is not our intention as we pray for each other, we miss James' point. He's trying to get us to healing. He starts in the early part of the book with trials and he moves us all the way across the book to the point where we are able to gain and experience healing with each other. And, and honestly, if, if we were to apply this book, if we just accepted that one sentence and characteristically practice that one sentence with each other, we could go home. <laughs> All right now, we're done. 
It, it's enough. It's enough. It's a simple version of what he does in the five chapters. Now, I will tell you, if we spent the time it would take to walk through the five chapters thoroughly or effectively, we'd be here a long time. So I'm going to take about 30 minutes and give you broader view of James than the one sentence, but a lesser view of James than what it entails, because it means a lot. I believe we need to do this. I believe we need to study and discover and learn, uh, quite frankly, a lot, and I'm asking you to consider it. I'm asking you to think about it. I'm asking you to look at how does this apply to you. For those of you that have the handout, you'll see five words, trials, deceptions, wisdom, peacemaking, healing, and there's arrows. Those are the five fundamental steps inside of this book. Now, are there other steps that underlie each one of those five? Yes, I'll point out a couple of those as we go. But let's start first in chapter one at the beginning of it, and I just simply call this the position of problems. So James writes and he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And you know what I think about that? I go, are you kidding me? <laughs> joy? I mean, my pastor growing up said it means throw a party when you have a problem. Why in the world would we count it joy when we have those difficulties? And honestly, it's a new way of thinking. And we have to look at these first three or four verses of James 1 and say, what's this new way of thinking? Do I, have I actually adopted that new way of thinking? Am I thinking about the trials that I have with you, the conflicts that I might have with you, the sins that you've sinned against me or I've sinned against you, the idolatry of my own heart? Am I thinking of those things as something that God wants me to think about differently than just a problem? And He does. I end up calling this section transformative trials. He is trying to get me to understand that God is up to something inside of me that He wants me to experience. He's trying to change me through the nature of what He is having me experience at this moment, which isn't any fun. It's a trial. It's a problem. And yet I'm supposed to count it all joy. That's what He's saying. And when we position trials that way, then we get the sense of it. Here's how... The writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why would you consider that? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's up to something in you, even through the trial, even through the difficulty. And Jesus is our example of that. He's the one that went through trials more, far more deeply than you and I could ever, ever go. So here's my point. If I don't look at trials and think of them as God doing something in my life that perhaps will happen no other way but through that trial and recognize them as transformative, He's trying to change me. He's trying to let, help me endure. He's trying to help me grow to be more like Christ. If I don't see it that way, then I'm deceived. I'm not viewing this the way God views it. And deception, by nature, is believing something thinking something that God does not believe, nor does He think. The clarity of thought comes to me when I align my thought with Him because He's perfect. He's the one that has the truth, not me. And so I need to look. Am I actually viewing trials the right way, or am I actually already deceived? Now in verse 16, you'll notice that James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 
Now here's this declarative statement. Don't be deceived. Be careful, in other words. Deception is real. I call it the the detour of deception. Basically, when I don't think like God thinks, what's happening to me is I'm detouring off the path toward healing. I'm going somewhere else. I'm not going where James is trying to take us, what God is up to in my life, and the deception leads me down that other road. Now, between James chapter 1 all the way through James chapter 3, there's 10, 15, 20 different types of deception that you and I fall into very readily. We fall into almost every day. I'll give you three examples just so that you grasp what I'm trying to say. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Uh, You know this text, by the way. Many of you do. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when I think my anger actually produces something good, I'm deceived. Because my anger can't produce God's righteousness. Now this is one of three times that the word righteousness is used in James. And he's making a very clear point that God is up to doing something inside of you that is not human. It's not earthly. It's not here. It's not from me. It's from Him. And that is righteousness. He's trying to produce that in my life. And yet when I get angry, I actually believe if you'd shut up and listen, pay attention, do something different, we might be okay here. So something good's going to come out of this. And we're deceived when we think like that. Unresolved anger is what I'm talking about. Some anger that just elongates. Anger that stays around. Not, not the anger that says I need to take an action. But an anger that I live inside of. And I will tell you this phrase, the anger of man in verse 20, basically means, the fundamental definition of that means, is that we are angry people. It's the angry of mankind. It's the angry of humankind. The anger of humankind. And we have it. It motivates us. And it's deceptive. It's a detour. Don't go down the detour of anger. If anger's there, figure out how to get past it and move past it. Another example in chapter 2, verse 13. I'll just quote one little part of it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And yet, especially when trials come our way, especially when we get nervous or we get anxious or something's happening inside of us, even from a pathology standpoint or mental health standpoint, we come up with judgments, views of something that we have, and we hold on to that judgment, and that's what we value. But he says, mercy, mercy. (laughs) Interesting word. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm deceived when I think judgment is the right pathway to get to where I'm going. It's not the right pathway to get to where you're going. Mercy is. Mercy will get you toward healing. Judgments will not. Now when you look at judgments in other parts of the New Testament, such as Matthew chapter 7, you find out why. Because they point out something inside of you. These are deceptive detours. Third example, the tongue, chapter 3. You know it well, I'm sure. First part of that chapter. I mean, believing that my words are pure. The truth that that verse says is we stumble in our words. Every one of us stumble in our words. My words are not pure. His word is pure, not mine. And when I start thinking that mine is, I'm deceived. And I'm moving away from that very thing that God wants. 
I mean, there's a lot to be talked about under this particular deception, but like the Old Testament says, words have the power of life and they have the power of death. Words do. I need to be careful with them. Not just believe, I'm right. That rightness is so deceptive. The sense of rightness leads me off the path toward healing every time. I mean, how right can I be? (laughs) What don't I know? Do you know the definition of deception means you don't know that you're deceived? (laughs) If you know you're not deceived, you have knowledge. So here's this problem we have, and it's a detour. We have to be careful, James is saying. He's saying, slow down, pay attention, don't allow those things to come. So then in chapter 3, he does the third part of this, which is the warning of wisdom. It's a warning, and I'm, I'm going to talk about three things. I'm just going to name them. I don't have time to develop them, but you, and you know them, I would, I would imagine. And if not, I hope that you'll dive in and think about them. But when he asks this, it's a rhetorical question in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? He's not looking for people to raise their hand and say, I'm over here. <laughs> no, he's saying, I'm not wise. None of us are. You're not. There's something that we need other than what we think. But the care that has to be given, first of all, is three idols are faced or often faced or listed in this text. If you look at verse 14 and 16, you'll see them named. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and then the word boasting. Some translations put the word arrogance there. And boasting is arrogance. The Corinthians... Paul's view of the church of 1 Corinthians was that their congregational idolatry was arrogance. And he based it in chapter 1 that they boasted in something other than the Lord. And when you boast in something other than the Lord, you are deceived, you are arrogant, and it is idolatry. So is selfish ambition, so is bitter jealousy. These are just idols that we often face. And it can take us away from the wisdom of God, is what he's basically saying. Four types of wisdom are actually named in this text. If you look at verse 17, 15, excuse me, and 17, you'll see them. Earthly, ESV says unspiritual. There's other translations that use the word natural there, natural wisdom, like the wisdom that we get from You know, growing up, I'm from the South. Growing up in the South, we think we're wiser than anybody else out there is, you know, because we got Southern wisdom on our side. Or the nature of man, how I am designed by way of personality style. I gain wisdom from that. That's natural wisdom. That's a source of wisdom. And the third one, one that none of us would adhere, adhere to or say that we have or want, is demonic something that actually comes and it's inspired by our enemy. I mean, he is, he is giving us a path to walk. He's giving us a way of thinking that is totally antithetical to the nature of God. And then in verse 17, he says, but the wisdom from above. Four sources of wisdom, which is yours. Which is yours in that moment is something to assess and to think about because it's a warning not to be trapped in earthly, unspiritual, or natural, or demonic wisdom because we naturally will get there. We have to move toward the wisdom which is from above, which is my third point. There's eight characteristics of that wisdom given in verse 17. Eight. So when I think something, when I believe something, and I have wisdom, I think I have, I'm wise about something, 
I just need to look at those eight characteristics and say, does what I think match up to those eight? Because if it doesn't match up to all eight of those, I don't have his wisdom. Or not the fullest version of his wisdom. The type of wisdom that he would want me to have. But when I have his wisdom, I will look at those eight and they will be characteristic. So the intent of the writer is to say, be careful and move toward those eight things. Assess whether or not those eight things are characteristic of what you think of that particular situation. So it's a, it's a warning from wisdom. The fourth part of this is the power of peacemaking. Now, this is the place where um, one of the other two uses of the word righteousness is used. And you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 18 of James, here's this, uh, I call it the pivotal point of the book of James. I think everything in James pivots around chapter 3, verse 18. Everything. He's leading up to something and all of these things about deception and all these things about wisdom to major themes of the book. We start with trials, we go to wisdom, and then we go to deception, and then he, then he recounts wisdom again in chapter 3. These major themes inside the book are happening, and, and now we get to this verse 18 of chapter 3, and it's pivotal. Why? Because he's talking about relationships. He's talking about my trials with you, your trials with me. He's talking about our conflicts, the challenges that we have with each other. I mean, you know, you, you know that old saying that if we didn't have people, everything would be great. <laughs> you know, it's people that are the problem, and that's true. Uh, you know, the last church I pastored, I told them, you know, you may have been perfect before I got here, but I'm sorry you're not perfect anymore because I showed up. <laughs> I mean, we have, cha- we have challenges, you know. I mean, there's real difficulty in it. And so we have these difficulties with each other. So what are we after? So when we get in conflict with another person, what is our goal? And what James 3.18 elicits is that we need to be creating a harvest of righteousness. Not rightness, not win, not defeat, but righteousness. If I'm not after righteousness, I'm after the wrong thing. So how do we get this harvest of righteousness? What's sown in peace by those who make peace? God's word, not mine. (laughs) If I'm not moving toward that person um, to make peace with them, you know, to get to the nature of what it is to experience righteousness together. And for me, righteousness is holiness in human form. It's, it's, It's the holiness of God actually being expressed and experienced inside the life of that person or inside the life of that relationship or congregation. As we grow in righteousness, it's His holiness that's coming to us. It's, it's His holiness that's getting expressed inside of us. So the other use of the word righteous in James is in chapter 2, verse 23, where he, ta- he speaks about Abraham, and he says he believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then notice what he says right after that. He called him a friend. God said he was a friend. Abraham is my friend. That's what righteousness creates. It creates the harmony, the unity of the body of Jesus Christ. That's why he wants us to make peace. That's why he wants us to get there. It's it's a pivotal piece. So in chapter 4, he talks about dangerous desires in the first section. What's the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it you want something? You desire something? You don't get it, so you fight. So you quarrel. That's it. I mean, it starts inside the heart. It starts inside of me. And what James is trying to get us to have is the pathway out of that. And the pathway out of that are God's gifts to us in verse 6 through 8 
of chapter 4. And there's three of them. Humility, submission, and the nature of repentance. The power of repentance. A sense of godly sorrow over what I've done. Not just being sorry for it, but a godly sorrow. Not just because of what that sin did to the other person, even though confession will help you discover that, but what that sin did to Jesus Christ. It nailed him to the tree. And if I don't see that, and if it doesn't create sorrow in me, and especially after we sing the hymns that we sang this morning, hold me fast. Oh my goodness, he shouldn't hold me fast. I nailed him to the tree. But he does. He does. And the power of that is unbelievable. But now I want you to look at verse 11 in your Bible. James 4, 11. Because he comes out of all of that and he makes this mo it's a colloquial statement. There's no superlative words in James 4.11. And it's very direct. And it's about me and how I speak of you. And he says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. Period. Here's the application of this whole thing. I mean... I, I, you know, I call this the reasoning of response. It's, it's the nature of how do I apply this? What do I do when I have an offense with another person and I don't like them right now? I actually believe they have sinned against me. If I were to represent them, I could not represent them in a healthy way like Ephesians 4.29, speak only to build up, not to tear down. I, I can't do that. I would speak against them, and yet I'm commanded not to speak against them. Why? Because that speaking against them takes you off the trajectory toward healing. It will not get you there. If I learn to do something different, it's, it's basically a call to do something different. There's another way to do this, a better avenue than speaking against. Speaking against has power in it. I get that. It can hurt. It can tear down. It can actually kill. It can kill relationships. It can kill character. It can kill reputation. And he's saying, don't. That's not what he's after. He's after healing. That doesn't match the healing, does it? Especially not when you put it into relational terms or into human terms about how I view myself. But unfortunately, we as Christians think we can think ever how we want to think and speak ever how we want to speak. And quite frankly, that's just simply not true. I need to learn... That before God, I am responsible for how I speak. That's the message of James 4.11. I am responsible to Christ to learn a new way to speak about that brother and not to speak against him. Speaking against him creates more of the problem. It's not the avenue through which leads to healing. It's a real challenge. And I get it. I get it personally. And so I, I ask you to write the word consider down at the beginning of this message because I want you to consider how do you apply James 4.11. How do you think about honestly speaking and not speaking against? What you do with your words will either create a barrier between you and your brother or it will create a benefit. It will create a way to actually address it. And when we speak against, we create a barrier. And listen, it keeps you from righteousness your experience of growth in Christ, when you speak against a brother, it will create a distance between you and righteousness. And 
a barrier to reconciliation, the very thing God has called us to. I mean, we came this morning to worship Him. We come to the altar. We leave our offering. And Jesus in Matthew 5 very clearly says, leave your offering at the altar and go be reconciled. He elevates reconciliation to the same level as worship. And we don't always think like that. When we don't think like that, we're deceived. Again, it's the, it's the nature of deception and the power of that. And there, there's a section inside this book. It's in chapter 5, beginning of chapter 5. And I call the primacy of perspective. And the problem with this is our, our, you know, when, you, when you look at what perspective means and you look at the synonyms for perspective, you get words like preferences or leanings. Uh, James 2 actually addresses this when we have favorites and we show favoritism. Not like God. He doesn't show any favorites. He has none. And yet we do. So one of the synonyms for this word, perspective, is bias. I am biased. And so are you. We're everyone biased. I think we're naturally biased. And I think we need to be able to identify our bias or name our bias and then submit that bias to God's exhortations to me and to you which an example of is do not speak against one another, brethren, as opposed to allowing my bias to guide me in how I speak toward you. I have to move away from that because I'm called to be like Christ. I'm called to Him. I am not called to be me. Individualistic me. Uh, no, He's called me out of that. He's called me toward Him. Now we're individually members of one another. We are connected. We are connected to Him. We are His body. I mean, these interconnections of what God is up to inside of us. I mean, this is, a, this is a big deal. I mean, we need to understand the perspective of the other person to clarify understanding of one another. And that understanding of the perspective will actually remove the misunderstanding we have for each other. Misunderstanding is not the foundation for reconciliation or healthy relationship ever understanding is so do we have to understand perspective yes the primacy of perspective means i need to understand you but i need to be careful what i do with it and in james 5 the example there is the rich you know and i don't think he's replaying chapter 2 or the part in chapter 1 where he speaks about the rich i think he's saying something to us that when i believe i'm right about something i am the one who is rich i am the one who has gold and i need to pay attention to what he says in that text and so in the next section, right after that, he says, be patient. Patient. The power of patience is amazing. And when perspectives are shared and they're distinctly different, patience is necessary. We don't get patience. We're going to miss this whole uh, allowance to get to healing. The very thing God is wanting us to get to. And just one other word in chapter 5, verse 12 and 13 um, I call it the awkwardness of allegiance, you know, uh, where I find something that I am loyal to and I am committed to that loyalty. And it creates this awkwardness among us in how we relate to one another because you're loyal to one thing or one person. I'm loyal to another thing, to another person, and all of a sudden we're distant again and healing's not even possible. We have to be careful. That's why he says don't swear by anything on earth. That your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, uh, there's a lot of thinking needs to be done there. Last piece, the help of healing. You know, there's hindrances to healing. And if you just think about the physical metaphor of this, 
Um, you know, someone goes out and they break a bone and they have a wound and it's open. You know, it's, it's a harm. It's a harm to their physical body. And that harm keeps them from healing. Something has to happen to change that harm. Mend that bone. Mend that broken skin. Get rid of the effect, infection. Something has to happen in order for that to take place. And I think what James is referring to, and I, I actually think there's five different kinds of healing in verse 13 through 20 of this book. I'll just name them for you just so that you hear me say what I think they are. Emotional healing, physical healing, relational healing, faith healing, and spiritual healing. Those are the five. And, uh, and honestly, so when we get into hurt with each other and into pain with each other and into disagreement with each other, and especially if we've spoken against each other and we've, we've transgressed some of these things, we've allowed some of the deceptions to actually take our path, define our path, we, 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 hinder, we hinder healing. Harm is a hindrance to healing. That's why we need to really understand each other's perspectives and what happened so that we can know what are we dealing with here. What kind of healing is necessary? What does it take to get there? And when it comes to you and me, it's verse 16. It's relational healing. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And I actually believe that what that verse means is that your prayers... Your prayers are powerful. Your prayers will actually produce the result. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't produce the result. I actually don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the response of God to our prayers, and that's the power that changes us. He actually transforms us in the midst of our prayers. But if you look at the very next sentence in, in chapter three, uh, 5 of 16, right after... You know, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The next sentence is, the prayer of a righteous person. And listen, that's you. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What is the it? It's the prayer. This is why prayerlessness is, is not good. It's not healthy. In chapter 4, he says, you have not because you ask not. That's prayerlessness. Or you pray, but, God, but you pray amiss because you ask with wrong motives. You ask something outside the nature of God. Did you know that God doesn't answer prayers outside of His own nature? Why would He? doesn't make any sense, does it? No, He brings us into alignment. Why? Because He's trying to heal us. And we don't have that healing in ourselves. We don't have it there. The means by which we get there is this pathway. I mean, you're that righteous person and prayer is great power. I mean, it is working. Prayer is actually working far after you have prayed the prayer. That's why it's an appeal to God. Watch what happens when you start practicing that. That's the point. You know, He, he's, he, he wants us. He wants us. You know? He's called us out into relationship with Him. He's out for doing what He's doing in my life and in your life. And oh my goodness, why He does that? I, I still don't understand. You know, I, I don't understand. I praise Him for it. But I'll, I'll, you know, it's, just, it's just an amazing truth. One of those times where I just go, God, I, I don't know why. I don't know why You love me and I don't know why You call me. I don't know why You allow me to know You to live in forgiveness and to give that up for some 
foolishness. Harm or hurt. As, as needed as it is to understand that perspective, it's so important. To give it up for some deceptive thought. Lord, you are, you are amazing. Thank you for this little book. James, may, may it become a pathway to us. That we wouldn't just get lost in one part of it or think it's an encyclopedia. But we'd see you have us on a path. And that trial that you want us to celebrate is the very gift from you that will lead us to the healing that only you can provide. May that be so. I pray in Christ's name.